Hello, everybody. Welcome to Nova Southeastern University's South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Podcast, also known as SFGWEP Podcast. We're here to educate, encourage, enhance our knowledge and skills, and promote all those amazing health professions experts working with the elderly, including caregivers and interprofessional teams. My name is Noshira Pandya, and I'm Professor and Chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University, as well as Project Director for the South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program. I'm really pleased to introduce our guest for this podcast. Dr. Heather Barnhart is Director of Clinical Affairs for Koya Medical. Previously, she was professor in the physical therapy department at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. As a physical therapist, her expertise resides in integumentary dysfunction, where she holds four board certifications and credentials. Heather has diverse work experience in academia and in the private sector. She's a key opinion leader and is actively involved in numerous professional organizations, conducts research, publishes, presents and teaches nationally and internationally on integumentary-related issues. She's past president of the American Board of Wound Management and is past board and executive committee member of the Association for the Advancement of Wound Care. She is currently on the board of the World Alliance of Wound and Lymphedema Care, advisory board for the Why Wound Care Campaign, and editorial board for today's Wound Care Clinic. Dr. Barnhart, I'm so pleased to welcome you to our podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me here today. We've worked with each other off and on for many years, but it's amazing that I really don't know the full extent of your involvement in uh, skin problems, in pressure sores, pressure injury, as it's called these days. So we're excited to have you here today to talk a bit more about it. Thank you. Can you start by telling us why this topic is so important to you? Absolutely. It's important to me for several reasons. For one, there is a lot of misinformation out there about pressure injuries, such that they're all due to negligent care. That's not the main reason why they happen, although that can happen. So proper education and awareness is really important. Secondly, pressure injuries affect people of all ages for a variety of reasons, and they can have a really significant impact on a person's quality of life, not to mention the financial implications. And third, but not last, though most pressure injuries are preventable, some are not. And I think that's really an important consideration for people to remember. So when a pressure injury is present, it's important to know the right way to manage these wounds to reduce the pain, maximize the outcomes, and reduce costs and complications associated with these injuries. Yes, it's a huge problem. And in my experience uh, over the years taking care of patients and talking to families, I don't think they realize that when a pressure sore develops, how serious it can be and how long the trajectory can be towards healing. That's absolutely right, and a lot of that has to do with the extent of the injury itself. And we'll talk Mm -hmm. about ways that we classify these wounds and what that means, but it is why the awareness and the education about these is so important to demystify them, but also Mm -hmm. to let people know that they're not all due to bad care or negligent care. You know, we see the signs on the 
on the freeways and we see the advertisements Indeed. about all the litigation out there like poor nursing home care and that's really not the case again there's situations that can happen but most of the time these develop just as a process of aging but also sometimes due to some of the risk factors patients present with so as a clinician what I'm interested in is what should our health professional colleagues know? What are the basics that they should know about pressure sores in terms of, you know, obviously you mentioned some risk factors, and then how to recognize them, how to intervene promptly? Absolutely. I think there's four key areas. One is really the awareness, which I'll go into in a moment. Mm -hmm. The other is really understanding risk assessment and prevention strategies and really implementing those and, and staying on top of that, as well as the importance of adequate, thorough, objective, and descriptive documentation, because if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And lastly, we have to also think about the way these types of injuries present on different skin color considerations. Very um, so important. Very important. So patients with darker complexions have a greater risk for developing these only because we don't see them as readily. So that's an important consideration as well. But pressure injuries of the skin and soft tissues can affect up to almost 3 million people here in the United States. So it's a pretty significant... It's a large number. It is. It's a significant problem here, but worldwide as well. It's not just a U.S. issue. Can right? I stop you there for yeah. a second? So 3 million people is a lot. Mm -hmm. Do we have an understanding of how many of those might be in the hospital setting or in the institutional setting? Yeah, great question. So again, pressure injuries don't discriminate. They're, they're, yeah. They present everywhere across all different clinical settings. So the numbers kind of indicate that in the acute care facilities, the hospitals, the incidence can be as high as 15%. In yeah. long-term care in nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, it can be as high as 30 to 40%. Now, that does not mean that the care in those facilities is worse or they're not paying attention to that. It's just these are where patients live, essentially. And so they're also older, have a lot more comorbidities, complications. Yes. So the likelihood of their skin having complications is a lot higher. Those numbers shouldn't reflect the type of care that they're receiving. It's just they're in an environment where they're living and a lot of these injuries are just part of the natural aging process. Yes, and now we see, obviously, in nursing home settings, far sicker patients Absolutely. have multiple comorbidities, hospital stays are shorter. And I think uh, what we're struggling with in, in our patients is the staff turnover, the shortage of staff, and so we're having to train absolutely uh, new you know staff members all the time and that's a that's a big challenge and you know a lot a lot of people like dealing with skin issues right sometimes mm -hmm. they're not pleasant to look at they don't smell very good no. but we have to remember we are really the healthcare providers regardless of your background we are the skin stewards of our residents of our patients and that's such a great term yeah well i think it's just important to remember you know i like to talk about skin as being our body's suit of armor which is very but protective. It is. it is, except sometimes we get a chink in our armor, right? And that <laughs> becomes a vulnerability. And that can lead to a whole host of problems. So we really need to make sure that suit of armor remains as strong and intact as possible so we can mitigate some of the risks. And that's an important thing you touched on. Risk factors for developing pressure injuries in general include any form of immobility, reduced perfusion, meaning if there's a reduced ability of the blood to flow to certain body parts, 
malnutrition is a huge component, and sensory loss. So, and again, other patients at risk for pressure injuries are anybody with, you know, cerebrovascular conditions, cardiovascular disease, if they've had a recent fracture, diabetes, incontinence. So there's lots of different factors that can contribute to a patient's vulnerability for developing such an issue. And a lot of those patients are the ones in long-term care and in nursing homes and skilled nursing. So it's a greater risk in those environments. As an endocrinologist also, I'm very interested in why people with diabetes are at greater risk. We did some work about skin water content in people with diabetes, and it, there seems to be a difference. What is your experience about that? Well, diabetes, as you know, is a very multifactorial, multi-system mm -hmm. problem, essentially, right? And with respect to the skin, I think for the patients in general, when they lose a lot of that protective sensation or the neuropathy that can develop over time, it really puts their skin at risk for breakdown. We yes. only need to be able to detect 10 grams of force to know we're potentially harming our skin. And when we lose that ability, which is not much, when we lose not that much. ability, we are people are at risk and they don't realize it. And so diabetes also changes the skin. And we call it really like a trineuropathy because it involves the autonomic system, it involves the motor system, it involves the sensory system, so it really sets people up for greater risk. And, you know, people always talk about, well, this patient population's not overly adherent or compliant, but I push back and say, you know, that's really not a fair state. How easy is it to remember to check something when you don't feel it? There's kind of a that's disconnection. It. When you lose sensation in your feet, for example, you know, you, you kind of have a disconnect with your feet. You know, they're there. That's it. But if you mm -hmm. don't feel it, you don't yeah. think about it. So. I have a story about that, actually. I saw a patient last week who I haven't seen for a long time. And he's a very bright man, uh, has diabetes, but for various reasons he couldn't see me in the clinic. And he has a four-foot amputation mm -hmm. and a, you know, mold, custom-molded shoe. And so a fair amount of protection. He's totally aware of the risks and looks at his feet every day. But he came in with a horrible callus and some boggy areas mm -hmm. on the stump. And we know that underlying that is probably an ulcer. And you know that happened just in one weekend? Yeah. I said, what happened? He said he was walking at the Renaissance Festival all it takes. Uh, for a long time. And I was astonished that that's what it took. And he had his proper shoes, padding, everything. Yeah, and, and even in the most adherent, uh, dedicated patients, things can happen. And it, can. it doesn't take that much time, right? He mm -hmm. was wearing the right shoe wear. He was very aware. He's mitigating yeah. all his risk factors. He's probably managing his diabetes very well. But Pretty when you, well. Yeah, when you have that loss of sensation, minor little trauma, minor little rubs, walking excessively, especially in patients with diabetes, because a lot of times they have biomechanical changes to their feet, so their pressure points are not where they're normally supposed to be, so Very they're true. more susceptible. And, you know, the hard part, when, when patients start losing body parts due to diabetes, a toe or a forefoot or a leg or whatever the case may be, the five-year mortality rate is significant. Yes. It's like 50%. Yeah. And so I like to say, and other colleagues of mine like to say, that amputation is a failure of treatment. It is in this day and age, if people have access to health care. I think we have to qualify that. Absolutely, we do. But it's important that that's not our first option. No. That we look, what else can we do to try to treat this individual, treat this wound? Let's try to salvage this first before we go right to amputation. 
You mentioned the importance of documentation. And I think before that even comes recognition, like what is the skin lesion your nurse is looking at or what did the nursing assistant pick up? I always feel like the first-line caregivers are the ones that have to be trained excessively. But how do uh, people in the healthcare setting, the caregivers, the healthcare professionals, how could they differentiate pressure injuries from other chronic wounds? Great question. Typically, pressure injuries are going to occur in areas where there's bony prominences. So like the back of the, yes. uh, the heels, right, for example, or the sacral area, the occiput, the back of the head. But it's important to remember that pressure injuries can occur anywhere on the body if there's a pressure-causing agent. So if they're laying on a catheter line, if there's a needle cap left in the bed, if there's sheets that are wrinkled, really anything yes. can cause pressure, right? So the first thing to recognize is, is there a problem with skin integrity? So if you see something, say something, as we always say. And sometimes we don't know right away what is the underlying etiology or cause. But it's always appropriate to start with describing something in the documentation. Is it partial thickness or is mm. it full thickness? Mm-hmm. Once we have more information about maybe the cause of that wound, let's say we do discern that it is a pressure injury, then what they should do is follow the staging or category system set forth by the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel. That has been specifically developed to describe pressure injuries, and it involves stages, stages one through four, going from stage one where the skin is intact, but it's not blanchable. So if you push on it, that tissue refill, that capillary refill doesn't occur. That's a sign that there's tissue damage. Stage two would be a partial thickness injury. It looks like an abrasion. Then soon as you get to stage three, stage four, we're talking about deep, full thickness pressure injuries. One, stage three kind of goes into the fat layer, into the hypodermis, but stage three can go into bone, muscle, tendon, and deeper. And that's still a stage three? No, that's a stage four. Sorry if I said that wrong. Yeah, stage Mm -hmm. four is once it it passes that hypodermis and gets into deeper tissue structures. Absolutely. But we also have unstageable pressure injuries. So if there is too much necrotic tissue or dead tissue, so we can't see how deep that wound goes, that's unstageable. Mm -hmm. We have deep tissue injury, and we also have medical device-related pressure injuries. I was going to ask about that. And mucosal membrane pressure injuries. So Mm -hmm. there's lots of ways to describe these tremendous resources to help providers know where and how to document these, but we need to call them for what they are and properly document them as pressure Because early on in my career, we didn't describe mucosal pressure injuries or medical device-related injuries, right. but now I'm reading that that's a more accurate description and it's more commonly used. Correct. But does that mean it's a different staging of pressure sores, or it's just a different etiology that we're describing? Great question. It's all an etiology because it was induced by some form of pressure. But yes. what the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel did several years ago is recognize that a lot of these injuries are caused by medical devices, right? So a Indeed. nasal cannula could be a medical device-related yes. pressure injury. Coming out of COVID, all the PPE that... Even the Mm. providers wore, those were pressure injuries, medical device-related pressure injuries, catheter lines, all those types of things. So say, for example, somebody's intubated. If they get a breakdown in their Mm. mouth from the intubation, that's a mucosal membrane pressure injury. Mucosa is very different than skin. So we don't stage mucosal membrane pressure injuries, but we should call them mucosal membrane pressure injuries. Typical pressure injuries that occur on the skin should be staged using those different staging systems. Yeah, I think in time and this day and age of you know high medical litigation, it's so important to uh, 
trace the trajectory, try to identify the cause as early as possible. Absolutely. So in your opinion, are pressure injuries preventable? Great question. Yes and no, not to be vague. Most are if proper risk mitigation is implemented, which really includes the offloading we talked about, the repositioning, nutritional support, proper medical management. However, there are circumstances when they are not preventable. And we see this at end of life and during what's called skin failure. And I think that's a really important topic for people to recognize. And we need to remember that skin is our largest organ of the body. And just like the heart, the liver, the kidneys, it too can fail. And what's interesting, given that life expectancy is increasing, the risk of skin failure also increases. And skin has a finite lifespan. So there's a point where the body recognizes, you know, I need to preserve heart function, brain function, so it shunts blood away from the skin, and it makes the skin very susceptible to breakdown. And these are really the unpreventable pressure injuries, but it's really skin failure. And you can see this at any lifespan, you know, if there's acute or chronic illness that makes them susceptible to something like this or a multi-system organ failure. But we do typically see this more at end of life in our older population, so they're not all preventable. And would skin failure look like large or multiple pressure areas that develop very quickly? That's been my experience. That is correct. Yeah, typically, not always, typically the most common site for skin failure is the sacrum, but it can happen really anywhere on the body, and they do develop very rapidly, very quickly. They kind of start looking a little initially like a deep tissue injury. They quickly can progress to full thickness, uh, stage three, stage fours, and they do come on pretty quickly because the body, the skin, if it starts shunting blood from the skin, our skin can only tolerate a hypoperfusion for about 20 minutes. And that's when we start up breaking down. That's why it's really important that if somebody's at end of life or multi-system organ failure, we recognize that and really educate everybody involved because these are not preventable. This is just a visual biomarker of end of life. And we need to educate the patients if they're able cognitively still present with us, family members and the medical team. Yes, I think that would mitigate a lot of distress and blame. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's hard. These are visual. And you walk in and you see mom or dad or grandma or grandpa and they have their, their skins breaking down in front of you. And of course they think somebody did something to them, right? If they don't know. But this is why really taking that time to educate and say, here's what's going on clinically in words they can understand. They're at risk for developing some skin, some skin mm-hmm. issues, some skin lesions. Um, we're doing everything we can to try to mitigate that, prevent that. But sometimes we can't because it's just the body's natural way of, of shutting down. And so if we take that moment to really set that expectation and let people know it's a possibility, not scare them, but let them know it's a possibility, it does mitigate that reaction that sometimes we encounter. So important. Thank you for that information. Absolutely. What can health professionals do to reduce the risk, and caregivers too, of pressure injury? Great question. One is identify risk factors for the patients and residents under their care. So things, if somebody is immobile, if somebody is malnourished, incontinent, has alterations in sensation, those are all things to really identify. And even aging individuals, because our Mm -hmm. skin is different as we age, it's more vulnerable. So using something like a risk assessment tool, like the Braden scale is the most common, and it gives us objective, quantifiable data to show the level of risk. And then based off of that level of risk, there's certain intervention strategies we can do. 
If they do have incontinence, we should address the incontinence, not necessarily just put a, an adult diaper on them, but let's treat the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. If it's a mobility factor, that should trigger a referral to physical therapy or occupational therapy. Obviously, malnutrition is huge, so absolutely get your registered dietitians on board, not just from a nutritional standpoint, but from a hydration standpoint. So we need to recognize the risk factors, those that we can mitigate and modify, which are often many, but there's some we cannot. We can't change a person's sensory status. If we know they have problems with sensation, then we need to address that through offloading, repositioning, using devices that are support surfaces that can support their tissue tolerance to reduce the likelihood. We can't always prevent, but we can reduce the likelihood of them from developing. So you mentioned something very interesting. I want to go a little bit more into offloading mm -hmm. areas that are at risk and also bed surfaces. There's a huge industry around this. Yes. And it's difficult for us as clinicians to know, okay, what what is the best surface? What's the most economical surface that a patient should lie on? Also, what are the best offloading devices? Great question. I think it's really important, you know, repositioning first off is going to be critical, especially for patients that are immobile or yes. cognitively impaired so they don't know how to reposition. So typically, you know, about every two hours if we shift the positioning, document the repositioning, but if somebody is really vulnerable, they might need to be repositioned more frequently, right? With mm -hmm. that, we should also utilize different offloading strategies. And what that means is maybe different support surfaces, to your point about different mattresses or bed replacement systems that can offload the patient or the resident. There's a great resource that's part of the National Pressure Injury oh. Advisory Panel called the Support Surface Standards Initiative, the SSSI, oh, okay. and they talk about how to go about selecting the right type of support surface for the individual based off of their clinical presentation. And probably the best way to start is looking to see on your formulary and who you have contracts with yeah. at your facility or at the hospital and start there and one of your best resources is really to talk to the representatives for those companies have them come in in service the staff show them how to use these properly how to make those decisions those algorithms to select what type of device might be the most appropriate and medicare also has guidelines for that and so we have different classes of beds or support surfaces there's a class one class two class three and there's instructions and guidelines on who would qualify for those different levels, and that's really the best place to start. Um, and but that's they aren't why cheap. They're not cheap, but that's where the documentation comes in. But it I is see. cheaper to pay for a support surface than it is to pay for pressure injury. Indeed. Mm -hmm. yep. And once they have occurred, you still need to pay attention to support surfaces, right? Absolutely. To relieve as much pressure. Absolutely. Uh, or reduce. I'm not, I'm not sure if pressure can be completely relieved except in certain situations. It can't be, but we can redistribute it. And that's the goal of what okay. we're trying to do with some of these support surfaces and other devices. And, you know, there's lots of products out there to help relieve pressure or redistribute pressure. But it's important to remember that that's not the end-all be-all. All the other risk factors need to be addressed, and it still doesn't replace repositioning. Even if they're on the best mattress or bed replacement system in the world, they still need to be repositioned. We have to offload those areas. It's gravity. We can't get away from gravity. Yeah. That's so important because especially in the era of COVID or people who are in critical care settings, practitioners might think that they're on the right surface. They can stay there in one position. 
as long as they can tolerate it. Yeah. And uh, they're not repositioned. What is your opinion about repositioning every two hours? I've seen that there isn't much literature to support every two hours. There are only a couple of solid papers there isn't. in this area. It's just kind of a, a starting point, if you will. Mm. You know, we all grew up with right. turn every two hours. Right. <laughs> and I think that story originated from that's what it took for the nurses to make their rounds, essentially, mm. is where mm -hmm. that came from. But realize everybody's tissue tolerance, which just means their ability to withstand the pressure they're experiencing, is different. So somebody might be able to tolerate a position yeah. for two hours, whereas somebody else might need to be turned every hour, every 30 minutes. This is why risk assessment is so important and really understanding clinically the way that individual is presenting so we can match that repositioning to their specific tissue tolerance needs. That's important. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, you get these standard order sets right. um, that are, you know, propagated everywhere and, you know, people document the turns and so forth. And sometimes you do lose track of this because there isn't adequate documentation. Right. Documentation is key. And, you know, I'll add one thing. There are times, especially in the ICU, where hemodynamically it's not safe to move that patient. And that is a oh. key opportunity to document because if you're not able to turn or reposition that individual because it could essentially lead to their demise because of their hemodynamic instability, we need to document that because otherwise we should be doing that, right? But if mm. there's reasons, medical reasons why we can't reposition somebody, we need to document that because if a pressure injury were to arise because of that situation, that's not the fault of the healthcare providers or the facility. It's their medical condition. Yeah. And I think that's the key to remember with these as well, is that these are not all caused from poor care or negligent care. There are many of these wounds that happen that are unpreventable, especially as we get towards our end of life. So what would you advise a busy clinician who is making rounds on their patients in the hospital, be it a a nurse leader or a physician, nurse practitioner, what should the quick checkpoints be when they make rounds? Great question. Well, I think we have the advantage in that the skin, being the largest organ of the body, <laughs> is something we can see. Visible. <laughs> it's visible. It's something we can touch, and it's something we can interact with. So even a quick skin assessment is important, but that doesn't mean just the skin you see when you walk into that patient's room or the resident's right. room, right? So it does involve, re if you can, turning them so you can see the sides, see the backside, all of those areas. And it's really something as simple as if you see something, say something. If you know normally how that person presents, then you can kind of readily pick up if there's a change. Is there a reddened area? Is there, if they're a darker complected individual, is there a change in their skin pigmentation? Is it a darkening, what we call dyschromia? Are there tissue temperature changes? Are there tissue consistency changes? So visually assessing them, as well as palpating that skin can pick up things very, very quickly. And the earlier we pick something up and intervene, the better off that individual's going to be. It's so important because I think many practitioners are not familiar with these subtle changes in darker complected individuals and that's, right. that's really important. The other areas that I've seen pressure injuries in very frail patients, I think you mentioned are the occiput yes. and the scapula and yes. sometimes even the backs of the ears, you know, mm -hmm. depending on how they were lying. Mm -hmm. And I think clinicians might not appreciate those as potential pressure areas. Absolutely, and, and in the frail individual, and it doesn't matter if that individual is really, really thin and cachectic, 
or obese. Mm. Aging changes the skin and it makes it much more vulnerable to things like pressure, friction, shear, negative consequences of malnutrition, dehydration, so they are much more susceptible. Even the thoracic spine, if somebody's a little kyphotic, right? Or if they're laying in bed side yes, lying between be a very... the knees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thoracic spine can be a very bony area. Exactly. And so, you know, we shouldn't see changes there, ideally. So if it's a, a lighter complected individual, you might see signs of redness that persists. But in those darker complected individuals, that's where you're going to see what we call dyschromia. So it's going to be more subtle. It's a darkening of the skin tone. So it's really important to have adequate lighting and also feel those areas because you'll pick up tissue temperature and consistency oh, changes. Very important. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about changes with the skin and aging a few times, and as I'm getting older, I know I've asked you, how should one take care of one's skin better? So what would you advise older adults to do uh, to take good care of their skin? Well, great question, because it's never too late to take care of your skin. Glad to hear that. Never too late. Uh, some of the tips I give anybody of any age, but particularly older individuals, would be make sure that you are um, hydrating you got to drink lots and lots of water. Water is absolutely key. The other thing is keep the skin clean and exfoliate. Now, in an older population, I'd probably use more gentle exfoliants on the skin, but it's really important because that removes a lot of the buildup, a lot of the dead skin cells. It can mitigate wrinkling. There's a lot of nice things that exfoliation can do. The next would be moisturization, but I would use a sunscreen. And even if somebody's not outside, wearing a sunscreen would be really important because even if they're driving, if they're just walking around outside for 20 minutes, if they're sitting in a patio where they get some sun, we need to protect our skin from UV radiation. That's very, very damaging. And if that's something that they're not comfortable doing, just wearing protective clothing, wearing hats, those types of things, and being really mindful of their environments because a minor mm -hmm. bump or trauma to their skin can induce a pretty significant injury. So our skin does age. It starts aging in our 30s. And it bruises very quickly very with minor quickly. injuries. But our aging accelerates in our 60s. <laughs> so, and to that point, the epidermis and dermis get thinner. We lose some of the vascularity. So the susceptibility to minor trauma is pretty high. So skin tears, pressure injuries, the bruising that these individuals often experience is much greater. What are cost-effective products that older adults can use to moisturize, to exfoliate? Great question. I and I have a personal interest <laughs> in this. Really, I look for anything that has olive oil base or a coconut oil base oh. because they allow the skin to breathe. You don't need to spend a lot of money on skin products. You really don't. There's great products at Publix, at Target. But look for something that has more natural, organic ingredients. Uh, my rule of thumb is if I can't pronounce it, I don't want to put it on my skin, mm -hmm. essentially. But use lotions or emollients that don't have alcohol in them, don't have perfumes in them. So using things like CeraVe, Lubriderm, Curel, the nice Nivea's, those types of things that have really good moisturization. Old-fashioned stuff, old fashioned actually. Yeah, uh, old-fashioned stuff. And even mm. you can even just take a tiny bit of olive oil and rub that on your skin. That's fine, too. But it's just nice to really protect that skin and give it its moisturization because we lose the ability 
our, our oil glands don't produce as yeah. readily as we get older, so we need to replace that loss. And what about exfoliation? Exfoliation, I would use gentle sugar scrubs. They're so. very gentle. There's a lot of products out there now that have very gentle exfoliations or very like gloves that can be worn that are very gentle. But oh. again, you want to use things that are gentle, not not harsh or caustic, especially with older skin. But really cleaning the skin is important. And I think older individuals need to realize too, hot water, I would not use hot water, I would use warm water. They don't need to shower or bathe every day unless they're really dirty for some reason. Two or three times a week is sufficient and it'll prevent drying out that skin. And I've never heard anybody say that, but I always felt that uh, it may not be necessary to shower every day. It isn't. It strips the body of its oils, of the natural biome that's on there that's protective. And so unless there's a reason, if they become soiled or whatever, then of course there's there, that necessitates being taking a shower or a bath. But they don't need it every single day. Really don't. And that sort of goes in line with, you know, many older adults who are in care settings mm -hmm. really don't like being showered every day. No, they don't need to. They really don't need to unless there's a reason. Unless there's a reason. So if there was an incontinence episode or soiling that happened for whatever reason or, you know, there's reasons why, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, they don't need to be bathed or showered every single day. Two to three times a week is sufficient. And in fact, some people take a couple of showers a day, and you know, I'm wondering if that's necessary. That's very drying on the skin. That's mm -hmm. very so. You know, after they get out of the shower, the ba uh, bathtub, whatever they're doing, you want know, pat the skin dry and immediately apply a lotion. Following that, that's when the pat it dry, not pat it dry. Don't it rub. Dry. Don't rub. And make sure you dry between the toes. That's always important, too. That's so important. <laughs> You've given us such a lot of good information today. Where can our audience find more resources on this topic? Oh, good question. I would firstly recommend the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel. You can just put that in your search term, and they will mm -hmm. pop up tremendous resources there, a lot of free downloadable educational materials that you can post around the facility, lots of valuable resources there. Also, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Indeed. is a great resource. Google is a great resource. <laughs> and recognize, too, many hospitals or facilities actually have really good resources internally regarding education. So I think it's important for any facility to establish a baseline of incidence and prevalence. There's literature yes. out there to show you how to do that. So then based off of your numbers, there's implementation strategies that can be done to reduce those numbers. And I think another important thing is to always make sure you have a wound care champion on staff. Somebody that kind of so is the true. point person. And that can really be anybody that kind of takes the charge of making sure everybody's skin is healthy <laughs> as much as possible in that facility or in that clinic or wherever the case is going to be. So there's a point person to go to for skin issues or skin concerns. I wonder if they could be called the skin steward. Absolutely. You can call them whatever you want. Absolutely. I mean, that might mean mm -hmm. a lot more in some settings. Absolutely. Because that's a really wound what we care are. nurse. Correct. Know. It's really being a skin steward. We need to take care of the skin we're in, but the skin that our patients are in as well. Dr. Barnard, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. We've learned a lot. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experience with our audience. Please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our renowned subject matter experts. Thank you.